Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi folks, James from the Stock Club Podcast here. Before we kick off today's episode, I just want to point out that a couple of hours after we finished recording this, reports began emerging that Elon Musk had offered to buy Twitter outright and make it a private company. The details are still coming out, but it seems that Musk has submitted an offer price of about $54.20 a share for Twitter, which would value it at about $43 billion. This represents an 18% premium on the price that Twitter shares closed at the night before, and a 38% premium on the stock price before Musk's stake was announced about two weeks ago. Obviously, in this episode, as you're going to hear, we talk a lot about this whole back and forth between Elon Musk and Twitter. So I thought it was important to point this out, that we recorded this before reports of this new buyout offer emerged. Who knows what's going to happen next in this saga? It might emerge that there's actually more news again before this podcast goes out. But make sure to tune in to the podcast next week and we'll give more updates on this. Don't forget that you can also head over to the My Wall Street app, where our analysts keep constant commentary on all the goings on with Elon and the rest of the market. Enjoy the episode. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James and joining me on today's episode are Anne-Marie and Rory from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about what Elon Musk plans to do with Twitter, the impact of the Etsy strike, and why so many big companies like Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla and Shopify are having stock splits at the moment. So Rory and Marie, welcome to this week's Stock Club podcast. Before we get started, I want to remind listeners out there today that we have an extended version of Stock Club that you can now listen to exclusively in the My Wall Street app. This is completely free to listen to. All you need to do is go into the My Wall Street app, set up a free account, and then you can listen to some extra content that we record every week. This week, as with the last few weeks, I'm going to pick my favorite elevator pitch the guys pitched me at the end. We're going to discuss it in a little bit more detail to figure out if it really is a good investment or not. So make sure to jump all over to the My Wall Street app if you want to listen into that. Guys, let's get kicked off today. And, you know, there's no other story I can actually start with other than Elon Musk and Twitter. I don't even know where to start first with this. After dropping a few cryptic tweets about free speech and social media platforms over the last few weeks, the market then went into frenzy last Monday when it was revealed that Elon Musk had taken a 9.2% stake in Twitter. The news propelled Twitter stock up close to 30% in the day. And the company's been kind of riding the wave since, despite the ensuing will he, won't he join the board and more tweets from the man himself mocking the platform and even asking was it dying. I think he, he tweeted a tweet of the top accounts and was kind of like calling out Taylor Swift saying that she hadn't posted in a few weeks which is a a very brave move to call out Taylor Swift on uh, Twitter even for the one of the world's most richest men. Rory there's so much going on here with Elon Musk and Twitter that's hard to keep up. Can you give us a really quick overview of events since Elon revealed his initial stake in the company? <laughs> well it'll have to be quick because uh, <laughs> we don't have that much time um i'll try my best um yeah look i mean you, you gave the the intro there really well he's he's reported a stake nine percent stake in twitter it's worth it was worth about 2.9 billion at the time he bought it so that sent the stock up 27 percent on that day i mean the immediate question was what's his intentions with this stake was he buying it because he thought the stock was undervalued uh or did he have some sort of activism in mind? Um, now, funnily enough, the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, actually distinguishes between those two states of mind. Um, 
uh, if you're buying a stock passively and uh, becoming a large shareholder, you fill out a certain form and you follow it with the SEC. Um, and if you're planning to become a large shareholder and be active in the mm. way that business operates, you fill out a different form, a more in-depth one. Musk filled out the former, indicating that he was uh, intending to be a passive investor. Uh, and by the looks of things, he filed it later than he was supposed to. And But, you know, the very next day, uh, Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal announced on Twitter that Elon would be joining the board of directors. So that was in direct contravention to his passive investor stance that he took yeah. with the SEC. And you know, if you want to believe uh, the reports in the New York Times, which I generally do, um, apparently Musk had called uh, Agrawal and Dorsey and given them a heads up on what he was doing weeks ago. Uh, and they discussed ways to improve Twitter and discussed him potentially joining the board. So again, not passive in any way whatsoever. In between all this, Musk was tweeting out polls, asking people, you know, what amazing changes he should make with his new toy. Um, a lot of those tweets have since been deleted. Um, and then on Monday this week, what I assume is a very frustrated uh, Agrawal, goes on Twitter again to announce that actually Elon would not be joining the board. Uh, and, you know, if anyone wants to go on Twitter and read that statement in full, I think you'll agree that has the flavor of a person who wants to say a lot more yeah. Can't say publicly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But like, I I want to get back to one thing you mentioned first. There's obviously so much to, to delve into here. It's kind of hard to, to focus in on one particular area. But one thing you mentioned at the start was the reasons why Musk might have bought Twitter. And I think it's something we've mentioned quite a lot here, you know, relative to its influence on the world. You know, the, the president of the or the former president of the United States basically ran the presidency through Twitter. Its stock price has really been divorced from that. You know, it's such an influential platform, but it's been pretty anemic in terms of stock price appreciation or even growth since its uh, its IPO, especially when you compare it to its um, peer Facebook, who kind of IPO'd in around the same time. Do you think that Musk sees an opportunity here for a platform that is still under-delivering so much? Do you think that could be a feasible reason for his his kind of taking out a big stake? Well, I suppose that question kind of gets to the roots of this entire story which is kind of what's his intentions? Why is he playing this kind of cat and mouse hard to get game with? A lot of people say he's just bored. (laughs) Well, I mean, look, if you were to take a kind of Hanlon's razor viewpoint, which is the kind of lesser known cousin of Occam's razor, that says never attribute to malice what can adequately be explained by stupidity. Um, so maybe he himself doesn't know what he wants to do with it. You know, that's the very, yeah, very possible. I, I don't think he's doing it for the money. You know, the stock went up 27% the day he announced it. That gain is basically a rounding error on Musk's bank account. Um, mm. Does he actually have some idea of what he wants to implement to make the platform better? I mean, if he does, then why didn't he join the board? Um you know, but, but I believe there's some limitations, though, as well. Um, you, you wrote a really good piece about this in the My Wall Street app, which you can read right now. But I believe that remaining a passive investor means that he can accumulate more shares. Am I correct in saying that? Uh, well, part of the deal of him joining the board was a kind of, I suppose, gentleman's agreement that he wouldn't accumulate more than 14.9% of the business. That's a kind of standard thing that Twitter has on for all its board of directors. Yeah. He would have had to agree to that. Now, you know, would he have, you know, stood by that? You know, he doesn't seem to be someone who really cares about not, these things. Not one for the rules is our Elon. <laughs> no. And like, you know, you know, Ben Thompson on Stratechery made a really good point that actually Musk probably has more power to, to make changes when he's not on the board. He kind of has this soft power because of his status and, and, you know, how he can impact the stock price. They essentially kind of have to listen to him now. 
And, you know, uh, Matt Levine, writing for Bloomberg, wrote a really great piece in which he argues that, you know, these days, the days in which we live at the moment, you know, we live in a world where just kind of doing weird stuff that makes Elon Musk happy is a pretty good strategy if you want to make your stock price go up. You know, why bother building anything or inventing anything when, you know, just having Elon tweet some cryptic nonsense about Dogecoin will make your stock pop 10%. Uh, And the other, I mean, the other thing is perhaps he's kind of looking to buy it outright you know? yeah if 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 you know I, I have no doubt he would take no he would have no problem breaking his promise on accumulating shares if he was on the board but maybe it's just simpler just to not make the promise in the first place yeah absolutely and we're going to come over to you as a an avowed taylor swift fan how did you feel about elon coming for taylor swift uh, about her twitter account particularly I don't know how smart that is. We ha- we would have to see our our Elon fans and Swifties. Who do we think is more insane on social media? <laughs> who would win the war for Twitter? I think it's important to ask. I think that's the real crux of the issue here: is how loyal are fans to Taylor Swift? It doesn't matter about Elon and all the you know SEC and all that stuff and his massive lawsuit he's about to face for you know t- forgetting to tell investors that he was taking out this huge stake. No, Taylor Swift versus Elon Musk's Reddit fans. Who will yeah. win? It's it's the battle we all want to see. I, I want to yeah. put on record here that all three of us here are Swifties, so uh, please, please, <laughs> please don't come uh, for Stock Club. I mean, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that Elon's just kind of having a bit of fun a lot of the time. His primary hobby these days seems to be sort of like large-scale chain yankery, you know, regardless <laughs> of the impact that it has on anyone else. And that's why it's kind of so hard to know what he might do next, because he just doesn't operate like... 99.99999% of the people in the world. Um, you know, most corporate leaders would like to avoid getting on the wrong side of the SEC. But, you know, Elon Musk doesn't care. He just pays some lawyer to sort it out for him. Like, um, yeah. most people wouldn't like to be brought to court for defaming a person they've never met, for accusing them of being a paedophile while they were risking their own life to save 11 children. But Elon doesn't care, you know, just doesn't matter to him. You know, most people wouldn't do an awful lot of things. But <laughs> it's not in Elon's mindset he just does what he wants and it's kind of sad that the sec has become so toothless that they allow him to continue yeah absolutely um i'm sure we'll be coming back to more of this but i'm curious before we move off this story i want to hear who do you guys think would be the best person so if it wasn't elon i think you know we're all fairly invested in in twitter as a platform and as an investment who would you guys love to see come in what crypto billionaire would you like to see come in maybe not crypto and and shake things up at twitter and marie taylor swift <laughs> I don't know, would Taylor Swift be that good for, for Twitter? She would probably start hiding features and then you'd only get to access them and then she would call them Taylor's version. <laughs> you get edit button Taylor's version, which means that you only get to comment on things that happened 10 years ago. Um, and instead, instead of dark mode, you have sepia mode. <laughs> yeah, you have red version. It's yeah, all, you know, it all yeah. goes into red. It's for the fall and everything. And then Jake Gyllenhaal would be banned from the platform. You're not even allowed to say Jake Gyllenhaal's name. If you tw- if you tweet Jake Joan Hall, your account gets deleted. I think that's good. <laughs> Sign me up. Sign me up, Rory. What yeah. about you? The kid that set up the the tweet that that monitors Elon's Jeff. I think yeah. he'd be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> make him CEO. I think there is a valid argument that Elon Musk has has taken such a big stake in Twitter to just try get that account cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't look great from let's move on then and we're huge fans of etsy here at my wall street obviously and it's actually very rare that we ever talk about them in a negative light but the company is finding itself under pressure this week as more than fifteen thousand of its sellers go on strike this week-long strike was precipitated by some planned changes coming to the e-commerce platform which most notably i suppose included an increase in transaction fees for sellers from five percent to six point five percent 
Amory, Etsy is a company that's often described as kind of the antithesis of Amazon. Surely a strike like this is a very bad look for a company like Etsy. Yeah, at the outset, it, it certainly it doesn't look great. Etsy really brands itself as that place for artists, for creatives. It's the port in the e-commerce storm, if you will. And, and you are correct. Like it likes to say it's the antithesis of Amazon. It's it's the alternative to kind of the on-demand mass-produced shopping we've, mm. we've all become accustomed to. But that branding does mean that an increase in seller fees looks like a betrayal because how can you claim to support artists while simultaneously taking away some of their income? And uh, Etsy has actually pulled off some of these fee increases before and and it's done it with a high degree of success i think really the issue we have at the minute is with the present climate with so much focus on inflation and we have this hyper awareness around wages it it was kind of bound to garner more criticism and and public attention especially with etsy coming off a year of just record profits it did Mm. really well in the pandemic but you can argue that it did really well in the pandemic because of the diversity and strength of its sellers of having all these unique players scattered all across the united states and the world so it's a pretty bad pr move to be honest for from for uh, for etsy investors and kind of etsy board members i would say yeah absolutely like ceo josh silverman when he announced these upcoming transaction increases or transaction fee increases sorry he said that the changes were to fund improvements in the marketing seller tools along with growing the support team and things like this like surely these are all good things for sellers how how does a company strike the balance between you know reinvesting in the company and and also keeping in etsy's case probably one of its secret weapons which are its its platform of loyal sellers happy yeah as i kind of mentioned these changes have been made previously and they worked quite well so when josh silverman actually joined etsy back in 2017 one of the ways he was able to turn around then it was quite a struggling marketplace was was via a fee increase and, and the funds raised um and the features added helped attract new sellers to the platform and it's kind of credited with some of the early success that etsy had prior to the pandemic however like at, at the same time i've heard criticism from some sellers the wall street journal interviewed christy cassidy who is an etsy shop owner and she's actually an organizer of, of the petition and she said that etsy strategy is incompatible with how many of the artists who built the brand do business Sellers who make everything by hand have a limit to their orders, to what they can produce. So more Mm. advertising doesn't necessarily mean more revenue for these sellers. And I've also heard this focus upon marketing and increasing sales has meant that Etsy has relaxed some of its standards when it comes to verifying sellers. So it's now more and more common to see shops on the site that are merely fronts for mass-produced items. And that annoys actual artists who then get pushed further and further down the search result list by shops that can suddenly ship hundreds and hundreds of orders a week because they're not really what you would expect to see on Etsy. They're not really artists they're not creators they're just drop shipping stuff essentially and so yeah it is it is you do have to strike that balance because obviously etsy is making this move to to increase revenue because it just came off this tremendous growth year and it kind of wants to maintain that momentum but yeah you you don't want it to be in the face of all of these kind of incredible unique people who have made your platform so special and made it what it is today are we kind of seeing that maybe a ceiling to Etsy's strategy here? Obviously, Amazon, you know, sells mass-produced stuff is very, very scalable. You know, more advertising, the more money it pumps back into the platform, the more its sellers can sell. The way you 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 kind of describe that there shows that maybe it's kind of a, a hidden, a hidden danger or a hidden stone lurking under the water here with Etsy that it's it its growth strategy might not be as as applicable as as other companies have um has have found yeah i would kind of argue that like this this current strategy the, the fee increase it seems to be focusing upon the sellers that already exist on the platform and i would argue that that if etsy wants to grow it needs to go find more sellers more artists to bring onto the platform to diversify its holdings further and then it obviously needs to take care of this issue of having people drop selling on the platform because that does ruin the aesthetic of the website and then it really probably tarnishes your relationship with really strong 
strong and unique sellers that you already have. So it's not necessarily that they're hitting a ceiling. It's it's more that I think it seems desperate maybe isn't the word, but it's it's just kind of a, a quick a quick fix really where they're saying, okay, like what can we do? Well, we'll, we'll raise the fee. And that seems like that's something we've seen kind of across the board from a number of companies at the minute. Yeah, absolutely. Rory, I want to throw this over to you. You know, we've we've seen remember companies having strikes and boycotts against them before. I think probably the most famous one in recent memory is back in 2020 when many big advertisers boycotted Facebook, sorry, Facebook, Facebook over the proliferation of hate speech on its platform. That ultimately was bad PR, but it didn't really have that much of an impact on companies on Facebook's bottom line. Do you do you kind of see it the same way playing out for Etsy? Yeah, I mean, this, the the Facebook boycott really had no impact on their bottom yeah. line, unfortunately. And, and that was a kind of, I suppose, that was one of those moments where you're kind of like, God, they're too big. <laughs> kind of too big to fail kind of fear going on there. I mean, what's always been interesting about Etsy is, like Amory said, I think there there has always been this kind of strange relationship that the company has with its sellers where, you know, by the very nature of the, you know, homemade, handmade stuff, it's it's supposed to be kind of I don't want to say kind of like lackadaisical, but you know they're not they're not there churning stuff out yeah. in a mass in a mass way. But and that's kind of the the that's kind of what's nice about it. But then the company's also like, well, we have to match customers' expectations as well. So you know, a couple of years ago they they came in and kind of tried to kind of force next day delivery on their sellers, and the sellers were like, well, that's not really what I want to do. It's like, well, look, this is how. Is a kind of like uh, almost help me help you kind of dichotomy yeah. <laughs> going on where they're like, you know, if we do this, we'll be able to, you'll, you'll get more revenue in the end. And I, you know, there's also a kind of thing with, I suppose you could look at something like Airbnb as well. Like, you know, when Airbnb first started, there was a very kind of jovial, you're staying at someone's house and the host is going to look after you. And then eventually, you know, it turned into this thing where just these kind of investment funds were buying up loads of property in London and, you know, mm. it was this kind of faceless Airbnb experience and, they, they were, there was even a company that was you hired to you know rent out your Airbnb for you, and then they they did all the cleaning and the servicing, and it just became like another hotel. You know, it was yeah. So, um, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> will Will the strike have any impact on Etsy? It's I don't think so. I think um, I think that was that was a long day, way to say you don't know. <laughs> I think I think in the end of the day, uh, you know, it's the biggest platform. It's where the eyeballs are going to be. Yeah, I I would hope that you know, Josh Silverman does seem to be a very good CEO. He seems to have his head screwed on. I would hope he'll be able to kind of you know sort this out in some way, figure out some sort of compromise he can have to 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 get a good piece of PR out and keep the sellers happy in the end. Yeah, Anne-Marie, just a final point on this. Like this Etsy stuff, it feeds into a lot of the wider labour pressures that we're seeing, particularly in the US. Uh, We're seeing unionization in particular becoming a headache for companies like Amazon and Starbucks at the moment. Is this, you know, is this the post-COVID labour landscape? Is this something we have to get, you know, used to and, and expect now, especially when we're looking at these companies as potential investments? Yeah, there, there does seem to be this kind of public reckoning going on that, that many industries do not pay enough or they do not treat their workers well enough. And I think that this has kind of spurred a kind of cultural shift. Many of these Etsy sellers are creating high quality products, probably for less than they could charge if they were producing the exact same product for a big brand. It's it's almost insulting to see Etsy take a larger portion of that because the sellers make Etsy what it is. They mm-hmm. are essential. And similarly, like Amazon workers are often viewed as, as just cogs 
they're but they're essential cogs and if they're essential why are they not making a living wage and being treated fairly and this kind of goes back to something we talked about several podcasts ago when it came to automation and it's i think sometimes similar to what rory said the internet age has made people across classes really devalue human labor there's this expectation that things should be free and easy and instantaneous Mm. but we forget that people have to create those things it's the exact same argument we use when like spotify isn't paying their artists enough but it's because there's an expectation as a consumer that spotify is only $5 a month. It's only $10 a month. I should be able to stream as much music as I want. And then you're sitting there going, yeah, but like some indie artist can't even make enough money to buy dinner when you stream their songs. So like that's a very unbalanced economy. So we do seem to be in this moment where the tide seems to be turning. And I think COVID was kind of the linchpin where it was this moment of recognition where when we were all stuck at home and we were all relying upon these essential services, you know, we were all buying all this stuff off Amazon because we were bored or because we couldn't go to the shop and it was getting delivered by all these people. All of a sudden we were all sitting there going, well, yeah, all of these people are really essential and they're all working really hard and then you find out they're not making enough money or they don't get a lunch break or they don't get to sit down or whatever it is and and so yeah I do think there seems to be a kind of reckoning and I don't really know what that's going to look like but I do think probably for any stock you might be buying in the next I don't know year two years three years you do maybe need to have a little bullet point where you go what are the labor concerns for this company how are they protecting themselves how are they building a labor mode how are they treating their employees I think that might become more and more important going forward. I was waiting for you to mention Costco and Marie. <laughs> I love Costco. Come on. They give health insurance in a 401k. You can't, you got to love it. Like <laughs> All conversations eventually revolve back to Costco, but no, absolutely. Uh, really, really interesting. So let's move on then. So don't forget, if you listen to this podcast in the My Wall Street app, you're going to get some extra My Wall Street member content at the end. This week, I'm going to pick whichever elevator pitch is my favorite, and we're going to discuss the company in more depth and really kind of get to the bottom of if it's a good investment or not. It's completely free to listen to. To episodes of Stock Club in the My Wall Street app. All you need to do is create a My Wall Street account. So if you want some more Stock Club in your life each week, just head over to mywallstreet.com or download our apps from either the app or Play Store. If that wasn't enough, I'm also delighted to announce that My Wall Street is launching a brand new podcast series in a couple of days' time. FML Fund My Life is a podcast that makes investing seem approachable, easy, and something that you can actually enjoy. Traditionally, investing in the stock market hasn't been so welcoming to women or really any newcomer. So this FML podcast will create a community for novice investors to ask questions and feel support about their investing journey along the way you might learn a thing or two about the financial and business world too and marie you're cheating on us with this new podcast you're one of the new hosts of this along with our colleague nicole can you expect can you tell people sorry what they can expect when they tune into this and also importantly for us can you tell us which podcast you prefer recording oh they're kind of they're very different so i guess like (laughs) that is a politician's answer yeah yeah. um i guess like this i guess this podcast is kind of the breaking news podcast you know we're checking in with specific companies we're going back and looking at stocks on the shortlist we're pitching you new companies this is very like people who are already investing love this podcast i think the other podcast is very narrative driven it's kind of story driven it's it's a lot of conversations that myself and nicole are having about our own investing future we get to go and interview some really interesting people in business and investing and talk to them about their stories and also kind of selfishly it's the place where I get to go and make the evergreen deep dive stories that I don't yeah. get to talk about on here. So we're developing an episode on NFTs at the minute, which I'm very excited about. And it'll just be 45 minutes of me just talking about obnoxious <laughs> things with NFTs. So I'm very excited for that. So that's kind of what you can expect. Our introductory episode will be out on Sunday. And it's just myself and Nicole talking about our first investments, the companies that we picked, why we picked them, the mistakes we made, the lessons we learned, and kind of setting people up who don't know anything about investing to learn a little. So tune in or send it to people 
people that aren't investing but you wish that they were sounds good yeah so that will be available across all major podcasting platforms uh, if you want to check it out it's coming out this Sunday if you check out any of our socials you'll find a link for it there okay I cool I thought it was only on. white men who set up podcasters so they could just <laughs> talk about all their <laughs> everything they want it's cheaper than a therapist <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on. Uh, let's dig into the My Wall Street mailbag this week and see if there's any questions sent in by listeners. What I have today is an amalgamation of a few questions that we've received in from listeners recently, which is, why are so many big companies splitting their stock? So in the last couple of weeks, you've seen the likes of Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla, and now Shopify all implementing stock splits. Um, so what gives, guys? Anyone can answer this question for me? I think the bigger question, one that we really do need to address, is why, why... Why do we end up constantly discussing what is a very, very mundane piece of corporate accounting? This <laughs> must be the thing we talk about most. <laughs> um, I don't, I like, I don't really know when it got started, but there has become this kind of weird aura around stock splits where investors think that they are a positive in some way. Can can you just explain, just for anyone who might not know, just really quick TLD or what is a stock split? Um, yeah, it's you know if you have if basically if you have if you have one stock worth a hundred dollars, a company might decide that they're going to split that stock into four, and you'll have four stocks worth twenty five dollars. So it doesn't change the underlying holding you have. It doesn't change the the fundamentals of the company. It doesn't change the value of the company at all. It's just breaking up big pieces of stock into smaller pieces of stock. It's like cutting a pizza into 16 slices instead of eight slices. That's literally, it doesn't make, it's like, I mean, I think there is some kind of implication of positivity, you know, yeah. your stock's gone up so much over the last few months, you feel the need to split the stock. Well, it was and, surely something that was quite relevant maybe 10 or 20 years ago when fractional investing wasn't a thing. Yeah. Yeah, it was. When you could only buy one share, it was it was something. And, and Berkshire Hathaway famously never split their stock. And then, you know, when when kind of investment banks started making these kind of uh, look-alike fundy things, um, Buffett got angry and he created a new class so that it was more um, accessible, a B class. But, you know, in the world of kind of fractional share ownership, it doesn't really make any difference at all. You know, people seem to think that it's making them more accessible. There is there is some kind of minor implications in terms of like the options markets and things like that. Mm. Um, but, you know, the economic value of your holdings is exactly the same pre-split and post-split. You know, I mean, now Rory Sutherland would say, you know, if your perception is worse than your reality, why bother improving your reality? So, you know, why not lean into into the perception game? Um, and maybe this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with kind of Twitter and, and Elon, you know, why bother, why bother doing anything important like, you know, a, a good strategy or launching a new product or, you know, when all you have to do is do a sock split and your stock's going to go up. Um, yeah. I just have these kind of like nightmare scenarios in my head where like corporate consultants are going into businesses and being like, look, guys, we need to get you on the TikToks, you know, you need to start a Twitter feud <laughs> with some with some corporate rival and then we'll get you into the NFT game and and do some ESG PR and then stock split, bada bing, bada boom, profit. You know, that's like, that's how it's going. And it's kind of sad to see, but. So, so yeah. is that is that the reason? Is that why they're all doing it? <laughs> I don't know, you have to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> well, the important thing is it gives us something to talk about, Rory. Isn't that right? <laughs> 
<laughs> cool. Thanks for that. Yeah, I, I hope that answered uh, your collective questions and you weren't too output by uh, Rory's obvious disdain for the topic. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. It's because then. every it's every time a stock split happens, I have to go on Twitter and explain to users that their stock hasn't gone down seventy five percent that day. <laughs> well, that is the true thing because sometimes the charts don't update immediately, and it it suddenly looks like a a share price is cratered. Which um, yeah, keep an eye out for that would be a good piece of advice. And Marie, do you have any disdain for stock splits? No, I think they just do it when they want a bit of attention. You know, Shopify, I think it was feeling unloved, and it said, you know what. We're going to do a stock split. We're going to get a bit of attention back on us. So there you go. That's what well, I think they do. Yeah, and it worked. Yeah. Uh, so let's finish out then today with the elevator pitch. So I want both of you guys to pitch me a company that's on your watch list at the moment. Let's keep it tight and we'll I'll pick one and we'll discuss that in more detail afterwards. And Rhea, let's go to you first. What company are you pitching me? I'm going to pitch a company that I actually initially pitched maybe 10 months ago in June of 2021. At the time, it had just freshly IPO'd, and that is Vimeo. Um, since then, Vimeo has fallen about 75%, so I thought I would check back in because uh, it was actually a company I was pretty excited about. I think Rory was pretty excited about it, them too. As a reminder, Vimeo has pivoted over the last few years from being YouTube's little brother and home of some indie films to a SaaS business that focuses on providing video tools for businesses. Video is becoming all the more important for marketing. It's the favored medium on virtually every social media, but also it's important for internal communication. Thanks for the work from home push. So Vimeo has a very good uh, lock on this market and it has some growth potential, but uh, it probably needs a refreshed look because 75% down is a, that's pretty hefty. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty bad. Um, Cool. Thanks for that. Uh, Rory, what company are you pitching me? I'm very tentatively having a look at a company called Gogoro. Gogoro? It's one of the few, the only reason I'm looking at this because one of the very few companies that have gone public in the last while, they came public through a SPAC. It's a Taiwanese company. They make electric scooters, but, but the kind of interesting thing about the business is they've set up this like charging network throughout Taiwan where there's like vending machines of battery packs pretty much like all over the urban areas of Taiwan. And, and if you're on your electric scooter and you're running out of charge, just pull up to one. You take the battery out and you put it into one of these machines. The machine knows who you are based on reading a code on the battery just deposited and it spits you out a fresh one and, and mm. charges it for it. So it's, it's these are apparently hugely popular in Taiwan. They're basically like they have complete market share. And other electric scooter manufacturers are now kind of building their scooters around those battery packs as well. So, I mean, in typical SPAC uh, form, they are projecting a revenue increase of, you know, a bazillion fold in the next few years. Um, they have some prominent names on the board. It's an interesting business. I'm not sure what kind of moat they have. They obviously have a big kind of network effect in Taiwan. If they can re- replicate that in bigger markets, you know, it could be a really big winner, but probably too early to say. There's very thin information on them currently. So I'm kind of hoping you don't pick that because that's really all I have to say on the market. <laughs> <laughs> well, seeing as you've you've kind of put yourself out of the running there, no, honestly, I'm on holidays after this. This is yeah. the last thing I do before I go on holidays. So, <laughs> as fascinating as electric scooters in Taiwan is, I definitely, from an investor's point of view, I really want to hear more about Vimeo. So, Anne-Marie, let's go with the Vimeo pitch. I'm kind of bummed when Rory said the name of his stock initially. I thought it was a Gogurt company. Gogurt is those little handheld yogurts <laughs> that we have in the U.S. I was like, yeah, let's hear about Gogurt, but no. Come back to me when you have a Gogurt company, what is Rory. The, what is the obsession with yogurts? <laughs> I don't know. Didn't you start talking to us about yogurts previously? Yeah, Yeah. I did. And I can't even eat yogurt. I can't eat dairy. I I don't know what it is. (laughs) It's the forbidden. That's what it is. Yeah. (laughs) 
So guys, if you're not listening to Stock Club in the My Wall Street app, this is where we're going to leave you today. If you want to find out more about Vimeo and what we think of it as a potential investment though, jump on over to the My Wall Street app and you can listen in to the rest of our conversation on the company. That's it for this week. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us as always on Twitter, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.